It's your favorite childbirth educator here, Joni Edelman, and this is Radical Childbirth Education. Education for parents and providers who want the down low on the low down. A quick content notice for discussions of death in this episode. Today on Radical Childbirth Education, we're gonna be talking birth physiology. Welcome back to the podcast and thank you for joining me again I appreciate your time. And you know what sucks? You know what really, really sucks? I'll tell you what sucks. Recording two podcast episodes and having them ready to be submitted and then having a garage band crash and losing it all. But I trust, I trust that I'm going to do it better the 17th time. And that's probably the number of take that I am on. I am striving not to have to edit these podcasts because editing takes five ever and really slows things down and it's difficult to create content continuously if you have to spend a whole lot of time editing it especially if it's not the only thing you're doing so without further ado let's just assume that that first go round was a practice before we get going in today's episode i want to remind you that my radical childbirth education course which is a live course that occurs over four weeks. We have classes every Sunday for two hours, including a lesson and a Q&A, is enrolling now. You can learn about it on my website. We're starting again in March. This class is based on my in-person curriculum, which has a wonderful, wonderful reviews from folks who take it. What's different about my class is not only are we going to learn anatomy, physiology, the stages and phases of labor, how to manage labor discomfort, how to deal with fears, we're also going to learn all the ways that your birth in the hospital might be impacted by the hospital and the ways that you can combat that. What things are necessary, what things are not necessary, what can you say no to, what should you not say no to. My experience as a nurse and subsequent exit from the medical system really allows me a lot of objectivity in this department. And I will tell you what the hospital's agenda is because I have worked there. I've worked with physicians. I know what they're thinking. I know why they're doing what they're doing. And those things that seem mysterious to you in the hospital setting are not mysterious. They're quite easily explainable. And I will do that. No question is off limits in this class. Again, you can check it out at my website, the number 13 moonsbirthwork.com for the class. It's backslash RCE. Now, to get going with today's subject matter, we're talking about birth physiology. I like to address what I call the elephant in the room. And this is actually the way that I start off my childbirth classes because everyone is afraid of the same thing. Mothers are afraid of their babies dying, fathers are afraid of the mothers dying. And that's valid, right? No one wants to die or have their baby die. But what I like to bring to this conversation is a perspective that I hope will help you. And it is this, as a person who has worked in both birth and death, I worked as a hospice nurse after I was a labor and delivery nurse, I am here to tell you that we are not in charge of birth or death. If we were, babies would not die, mothers would not die, fathers would not die, right? You would only die when you were 120 years old and had lived out your full life. But that is not the way it is. And to me, that alone is proof that we're not in charge. The illusion 
that we can somehow control who lives and dies is a harmful one. And it is unique really to the Western world in a lot of ways. We are so obsessed with technology and obsessed with advancements in medicine and every other thing that we think that at some point we can control every outcome and we can't. That assumes that human beings don't have free will. And of course we do. Everybody's spiritual beliefs differ, differ but I really firmly believe that we do choose when to come to the earth and when it is our turn. And that means we can also choose not to. And we can choose not to right up until the point that we take our own breath and run our own circulation, right? From a personal perspective, I'll tell you that my fifth child was born pretty limp and lifeless and required resuscitation, which I did for her on my chest. And she was a home birth. And I remember looking down at her and thinking she's dead and looking at the room and thinking, I just traumatized everyone here. Everyone just watched a baby be born and it's going to die. And really for a moment, just thinking she might not actually come into her body all the way. Of course she did and she's 13 now and everything's fine. But I very distinctly remember that. And as a person who has lost a baby late in the second trimester, even after a perfect healthy pregnancy with no problems and no explanation for her death, I can tell you that it doesn't matter what we do, sometimes we're not in charge. In a normal, healthy pregnancy, the vast majority of the time, you are going to end up with a living baby and a living mother who are both healthy. That is the vast majority of the time, the vast majority. And to believe that we can control all of those outcomes is to be naive to the truth that we are not in charge. And for me, there is a measure of relief here because it means I can let go of the idea that something that I do will somehow mean my baby lives or dies. Ultimately, we do our best and that's all we can do, right? One of the problems in American culture and the reasons that we behave this way is because when birth moved into the hospital, there was this grand promise of safety. Physicians promised us living babies and better outcomes. And what we've learned over time is that that is simply not true. When I'm talking to you about what I've seen, I'm talking to you from my personal perspective, from a perspective of someone who's seen birth in every setting and under just about every circumstance you can imagine and how they, those ended up, right? And what I can tell you with a certainty beyond a shadow of any doubt is that the more we screw with birth, the more that we mess it up. We screw with it, we screw it up. We leave it alone and it does what it's meant to. Birth is a physiological process, just like eating food and turning food into energy and waste is a physiological process. The physiological processes of our bodies do not require direction. Our bodies know what to do without being told. That's the beauty of many, many thousands of years of our bodies developing and doing what they need to do. And we can look at placenta having mammals over millions and millions of years and know that birth has evolved to be super, super freaking safe. Because if it wasn't super safe and women did routinely die, either from hemorrhage or whatever, then we as a species would not exist. So from a higher level perspective, it makes a lot of sense to go, oh yeah, that must be pretty safe. And to recognize that a lot of the reasons that we fear birth in this country are not actually because birth is dangerous, but because 
Along the way, birth became a business and it became profitable for us to be afraid. The more fearful we are, the more trust we put into the quote unquote experts. And this cult of the expert is a dangerous game to play because it surrenders our power and assumes that someone else can guarantee us an outcome. And the problem with this is not only can they not guarantee us a positive outcome, but this also means that if we have a negative outcome, outcome, we can blame them, right? It's the simple fact of human beings, particularly in the Western world and in America, certainly giving up their responsibility for themselves, looking around them for answers instead of looking within. The more that we believe that physicians are the experts, the more that we tune out to ourselves as experts. And in reality, regardless of how much physicians learn about anatomy, physiology, and pathology disease process, they are never an expert in our bodies. They are only an expert in what they've learned. And in my experience, the mother's intuition is far more valuable than what the physician might decide is the necessary path. It's important when we're talking about this kind of stuff that we realize as well, we know that any study, any, any medical study or research is impacted by the person doing it and through their views. So even though I share data and statistical numbers and medical research, when I'm telling you my opinion, I'm talking about it from my experience of seeing birth in various places and in various ways, and of seeing the ways birth goes when we leave it alone. And that is better. My only agenda, if I have an agenda at all, is to remind women that they can trust their bodies to grow and birth their babies and that they are innately capable of doing that without anyone else. Certainly not just a physician they've met and spent total sum of a few hours with during their pregnancy. But not even a midwife, a doula, or anyone else, right? A good care partner in pregnancy isn't telling you what to do. They're presenting you with options and then letting you choose what to do because only you truly know what's right for you. And this is a big shift in thinking for the majority of American citizens. It's a big shift in thinking to realize that we are powerful. And why do I care about this? Well, simply because when women feel empowered in their birth experiences, they come out bringing that empowerment and self-awareness and strength into their parenting, which makes them more capable parents, more confident parents, which of course makes healthier children. Not only that, but it's worth mentioning that a lot of the things that we do in birth, a lot of the interventions that we routinely use and employ may and probably are in many circumstances causing long-term harm. Let me give you one example real quickly. We, prior to the mid nineties and two thousands, never did anything about GBS, group beta strep in pregnancy and birth. We didn't even know that it was a thing. And then somewhere along the way, we discovered that every now and then, uncommonly, but possibly, a baby could contract group B strep at some point, 
we believed it was during delivery. I think that's wrong, but that's for another episode. And if the baby became sick, they could die from it. So in the mid-90s and into the 2000s, we began routinely in America, not other countries, but here, prophylactically treating people with antibiotics. That is, everyone who came in that tested positive for group beta strep during their pregnancy, usually at the 35 or six week mark, would get antibiotics automatically. Well, guess what else happened in the mid-90s and 2000s? The incidence of all atopic illnesses went through the roof. That's illnesses that occur from within. Asthma, eczema, food allergies, type 2 diabetes. Those are the main ones. Prior to those years, we didn't see high instances of those things. And in reality, what we know now is that we probably are causing that by harming the infant gut microbiome with antibiotics. Because of course, when we're killing the bad things, we're also killing the good things. This is an example of an intervention that everyone decided was necessary without doing a lot of research, without really critically considering what we might be doing, and have now created a whole generation of kids who are allergic to a bunch of different things. The first year of an infant's life is all about learning friend from foe when it comes to the microbiome. And if we don't have a good basis as to what is healthy and what bacteria are good for us, we can recognize things that are normal as being dangerous. And that is essentially what happened. And that's just one example of many ways that we have employed interventions in birth without really studying and testing them. When we trust that birth as a physiological process doesn't need intervention, we are creating individuals that are physiologically, anatomically sound from the beginning. So let's talk about birth physiology. Why do we even want to know birth physiology, right? For many, most of our history as human beings, we actually didn't know what was happening or why it was happening. We only have recently really done enough studies to know what's happening in the body hormonally and why all of that matters. Now, if it was 300 years ago or four or 500 years ago, people just trusted birth and they didn't ask a lot of questions, even though they already had the highly developed frontal lobe that we have. This is one of the features of being human that is awesome and subsequently problematic as frick because the bigger our brain is, the more we feel like we have to understand what's going on. We cannot surrender to the unknown. We absolutely must know all the details and data. And in America, we absolutely love numbers. We adore numbers. We love technology. The more technology, the better. And I would argue no. I would argue that in birth especially, we have reached a point at which the technology is no longer helping us. And we probably reached that point right around 1970 when antibiotics were invented, right, to save women from infection, when ventilators were invented to save babies who couldn't breathe on their own, and antibiotics also saving babies, right, because antibiotics are an important part of our cultural development in terms of um, treating infection occurring. And it's great. We don't dispute the fact that antibiotics have saved lives. But did the hospital save lives? Probably not. In 1970, the rate of C-section was about 5%. In America now, it's beyond 32%, which is absurd because we certainly don't need 32% of people having their babies by C-section. The reason that's happening is multifaceted, but a lot of it refer just really boils down to impatience and profit. And as long as there is profit in the way we have our babies, objectivity is really, really hard. 
So why do we want to understand physiology? Well, simply because when we understand what's going on, it helps us to make sense of what's going on. When we understand the physiology of birth and we see the beautiful symphony that exists there, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is perfectly designed and that we really don't need to do anything to it. And really, the best thing we can do is back very far away from it and just let it happen until it requires some assistance, which is pretty uncommon. And you're going to learn why today. So let's talk about birth physiology and a little bit of birth anatomy as well. We'll start off with the end of pregnancy. So the end of pregnancy is fascinating because we really don't know all of the ways that labor begins. One of the things that we know is that the when the baby's lungs are mature, the baby sends a protein signal into the mother's blood that says, I am ready to be born. And that is probably what starts the cascade of what begins labor. But we don't actually know, and I hope we never know, because it's mysterious. And I think mystery is pretty beautiful. One of the things that we do know from studies on other mammals, not on humans, because we haven't figured out how to do this ethically, but mammals give birth, all mammals give birth in a very similar fashion, right? We have uteruses, we have babies in them, we push them out, we feed them with our mammary glands. So what we know to be true is that in early pregnancy, the uterus has oxytocin receptors on the muscle fibers. You can think of these like a lock and key. Oxytocin is produced in the hypothalamus and then released by the posterior pituitary gland in bursts. Now, from looking at the uteruses of other mammals, we know that in early pregnancy, there are only a few of these receptors. And this is important because if the receptors were plentiful, if your uterus, for example, was covered in receptors, then every time you had any oxytocin rush of any kind, every time you had sex, watched a video of a puppy, hugged your kids, you would end up with contractions. And that would be a problem because then you would end up having your baby early. So the other thing that we know to be true is that in the last two to three days of pregnancy, before labor begins, those oxytocin receptors double in numbers. They reach their highest level a couple of days prior to the onset of labor. And the reason for this is pretty clear, right? If we want to create contractions that are adequate in strength and length to create the delivery of a baby, we need a lot of receptors to capture that lock and key oxytocin. Super important. The other thing we know is at the end of pregnancy, our levels of relaxin go through the roof also right at the end of pregnancy. These the hormone relaxin is responsible for the loosening of our ligaments throughout pregnancy and right prior to delivery really creates the most space for our hips to allow the passage of our baby. This is one of the reasons why induction for a big baby is not warranted. Because let's say you have a nine pound baby at 39 weeks pregnant and you are induced, your relaxin levels unless you just happen to catch it right before you were gonna go in labor, are not as high as they would be, let's say, in another week, if you were going to deliver at 40 weeks, when you had, let's say, a nine and a half pound baby. So you are more likely to have difficulty with your nine pound baby at 39 weeks than you would with your nine and a half pound baby at 40 weeks. And this is the reason why I had a 10 and a half and 11 pound baby without any trouble, because I let my body go into labor when it was ready. So. 
here we are with those high levels of oxytocin receptors, our increased levels of relaxin, our body is loose and ready to go, and we're going to get ready to begin labor. Prostaglandin levels start to increase, and if you're a person who has experienced period diarrhea, this is the same mechanism. Prostaglandins soften the cervix, thin it out, make it nice and soft so that it can dilate, and those same prostaglandins are what cause diarrhea in our periods and what cause the diarrhea that women often see just prior to going into labor, the clean out. So now we've got our prostaglandins, we've got our relaxin, we've got lots of nice oxytocin receptors, and labor is going to begin. The dominant hormone in early labor is actually estrogen. Estrogen is our people pleaser and it's our nesting hormone. This is important because historically we would have actually had to build a nest to birth in. We might have had to find a safe place, attend or alert the people who were going to attend, and make sure that our other children were cared for. Now it's more common that people are just trying to find someone to watch their dog, but the hormones serve the same role. We are preparing our space and preparing ourselves. Women in early labor, you'll notice, are usually quite talkative. Of course, they're excited and they're reaching out and letting people know that they're in labor and they're worried about everyone else because those estrogen levels are keeping us worried about everyone else. Our, if you have a doula, and hopefully you do, your doula is likely to tell you that in early labor, you should do activities that produce oxytocin and avoid adrenaline and also rest. We don't really, we are not really able to make a lot of impact on the speed of early labor. So the best thing to do is to conserve your energy, eat high protein foods, get lots of rest, and create your nest. Get the things in order that you need to get in order. The contractions of early labor, of course there is Pitocin, but those contractions are because the uterus hasn't been working for very long, are not terribly painful, they're not very long, and they're usually kind of irregular. This is not true in all cases, but particularly in first-time moms, contractions can be, you know, anywhere from just a few seconds up to a minute or even longer than a minute, and varying in distance from a couple of minutes to 20 or 30 minutes. Where we want to be careful in early labor is with adrenaline. Adrenaline doesn't have a place in early labor, and this is, I think, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why early labor takes so long in first-time moms, because adrenaline happens when you're afraid, and adrenaline trumps oxytocin, which means that it will cause your contractions to go away if you are fearful. And any midwife who's watched a mom struggle with getting her labor going knows that the more fearful a person is, the more likely she is to have a lot of stops and starts in her labor because that adrenaline is at work. The reason for this adrenaline is absolutely important and intentional. This adrenaline is there in all mammals to protect us should we not be able to find a safe, safe place to birth. If we can't create our nest and we need to run, then adrenaline will allow us to do so. This is obviously especially important in small mammals who are really subject to predators like, you know, mice and so forth. But it's also true for humans. And this is another reason why your doula and hopefully your physician or your midwife will tell you not to come to the hospital too early because the hospital is a strange place and you are likely to feel fear there. 
And that fear is likely to either space out or completely cause your contractions to cease. And this remains true throughout early labor. While those levels of oxytocin are building, it can still be easily impacted by adrenaline and kind of knocked out. So in terms of the medical definitions of early active so forth stages of labor. We're going to talk about the stages and phases of labor in detail in another episode, but what I want you to take away from this is we're not worried about where you are in dilation. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about literally what's happening in your body. But if from a medical perspective, this is contractions that are infrequent in length and strength and kind of all over the place and up to about five or six centimeters of dilation. So this is the point at which ideally you are resting. Now we arrive at active labor. And active labor is when you will notice changes in the mother as she starts to go inward. As the estrogen levels drop, and we are no longer worried about people pleasing because we are now going inside to do the work of birthing our babies, right? Active labor is where the majority of that work is done in terms of dilation, right? Getting from five or six centimeters up to eight or nine before we hit transition. The definitions of labor have changed over the years in terms of how they match up with dilation. I prefer to think of them in terms of what's going on in the mother, which is why I focus so much on the physiology, because numbers are very objective, and we already know that two providers can do an exam and come up with two different numbers, one after the other, and a provider can actually do an exam one time and get a different number if even if they did them subsequently, one right after the other. So we can't always rely on cervical exams to tell us something accurate, but we can rely on what's going on in the mother and how she's behaving. When mom goes inside and she starts requiring quiet and she's asking people for support physically, let's say counter pressure or hip squeezing or something like that, and her contractions are requiring her concentration and sometimes making noise, or other behaviors to cope with the sensations of labor, she's gone in and she's in active labor. Our oxytocin levels are continuing to rise and an important feature of the uterus is that the muscle fibers of the uterus are gathering at the top of the uterus throughout labor, creating contractions that are stronger and stronger and stronger and creating the power behind that muscle that will eventually allow your baby to be born. If you left labor all the way alone and it was truly physiological, you would sometimes see what we call the fetal ejection reflex, which is essentially just the body pushing the baby out. And I had one birth that happened this way, and it's really astounding. I I was sitting up on the bed and I felt him moving down and I just laid on my side and he just slid out onto the bed. And I remember vividly the physician looking around the room and the room had my sister-in-law and other people in it and just saying would you all like to watch a baby deliver itself which of course is not a good understanding of the physiology of birth but it was quite interesting from my perspective because i pushed not at all my body pushed him out and that was that and that is the strength of the uterus so this active labor stage is the uterus again growing increasing those muscle fiber strength and creating more and more power behind each contraction and is dominated by oxytocin. Now, once we get to the transitional phase of labor, this is where we see adrenaline show up again, except now we actually want adrenaline. But what's difficult about this is that most human beings have never experienced adrenaline without fear. 
Adrenaline is a protective hormone to help us run, right? It's part of our fight or flight response that helps us respond to danger. So one of the things that we talk about a lot in the class and work on is re sort of rebuilding narratives in our heads about the safety of labor so that we know when that adrenaline hits, that we don't have to be afraid, that we can trust that adrenaline to help us get through this phase and the pushing phase. What you'll see in this stage of labor is women often saying they can't do it anymore. They're leaving. I've had women get up and try to leave the room or women will make, you know, yell or yell at people or say I quit or ask for pain medicine or I can't do this anymore. And it's really, really vital that the that her partner and everyone in the room understand what's going on so that we can support her in understanding that this is a normal part of the physiology and that she is safe and that things are progressing exactly like they should. When women understand what's going on in their body, they can trust what's going on in their body and they can allow it to happen. At all stages and phases of labor, the more tense we are, the more fearful we are, the more we hold our body tight, not only the more uncomfortable we are, but the longer everything takes because it prevents our body from doing what it needs to do, which is, again, that strength, those contractions becoming longer and stronger to enable us to birth the baby. So this is an important time to remind the birthing person that they're doing a great job. This is when, because birth happens in the back of our brain, the primal part of our brain and not in the frontal lobe, this is when a lot of subconscious fears will arise. In, for example, my fifth pregnancy, during my pregnancy, my mother flippantly made a comment about my age because I was 36, and said I was going to probably have to have a C-section because she had my sister when she was 36 and she had a C-section. Well, of course, that's asinine, but, and I told her so. That's ridiculous. There's, this is founded on no accurate information whatsoever. But what do you suppose happened when I arrived at the transition stage of labor? I immediately, the first thing out of my mouth was, I have to have a C-section which made no sense because I was at home surrounded by people who loved me and everything was going just fine. But here comes that subconscious fear and immediately that's what I'm afraid of. And I remember my son Owen, who was 10 years old at the time, said to the whole room, you prove your mom wrong. And of course I did. But this is an important thing to know that the fears that are coming up for women during this time can be coming from very deep parts of our brain about our own capability, about the safety of birth. And so during pregnancy is a great time to work on with affirmations and with sort of reprogramming those inner fears that we have. If you're giving birth for the first time, and of course you've never done it before, that makes it that much more, you know, potentially frightening. So instead of going on the internet and finding all of the horror stories in the world about birth, I always encourage my clients and students to surround themselves only with people who are going to encourage them in their birth and tell them of their capability, remind them of their inherent worth and how safe birth really, really is. That is invaluable in the birth space. So now we've got our adrenaline. Our contractions are very strong and that adrenaline is present to help us push our babies out. But adrenaline isn't just for us. It's so important to understand the role that adrenaline plays for the baby. And this is one of the reasons that 
I advocate for physiological birth, and I am a person who has had medicated births. I've been induced, and I've had epidurals, and I was not adequately educated going into my pregnancy, even though I took Lamaze and I wanted a natural birth and I knew that I wanted low intervention. I was ultimately sort of bullied into an induction using that same technique. I don't, my doctor was not in any way malicious. I know and believe wholly, fully that he wanted me to have a living baby. I had had a baby that wasn't alive and that's very scary. And he didn't want to take any quote unquote risks. But of course, the real risk is not in being pregnant too long. The real risk is in asking the baby to be born before it's ready. And I was very lucky that all of my births have great outcomes and have I have healthy living, you know, five healthy living children. But it goes without saying that the understanding of what's going on in the body should influence the decisions that we're ultimately making around things like induction. So it's important to use all of the factors when we're coming up with these decisions. But the reason that I am so passionate about birth physiology is because once you understand physiology, once you understand what's going on in the body for mom and baby both, and you recognize the really beautiful symphony of hormones that's occurring, you also recognize that things like epidurals or even IV medications or any other kind of intervention ultimately influence and impact the hormone flow. I will link a study below that is very, very comprehensive and shows what happens to the levels of each hormone in the body after the administration of an epidural. And had I had this information going into my first pregnancy, I would not have opted for an epidural because I would have really truly understood the importance of the hormones at play, not just for my health, but for my baby's health as well. Adrenaline is vital, and if you have an epidural and you go to sleep and you are woken up by a nurse telling you it's time for you to push, you're completely dilated, where is your adrenaline? It's gone. And we love epidurals. It's their great invention. We need them. They're wonderful for C-sections, and sometimes they're wonderful in birth in general when moms need a rest or something else is going on. But overall, if we leave the physiology of birth alone and epidural really isn't required. We have plenty of our own beta endorphins meeting us where we need them to meet us in terms of pain relief, the highest levels of endorphins you'll ever experience in your life, because of course our bodies will provide us with the pain relief that we need. And in many cases, when birth is truly left alone, women don't experience very much pain because a lot of the discomfort that we experience in labor is related to fear and to the inability to be able to move about as we need and to do whatever our bodies are asking us to do anatomically. This is one of the reasons it's so important that women in labor be left to assume whatever position they would like, whether we're talking about the labor process or pushing, because women innately know the position that their bodies need to be in. And I have seen time and time again, when a woman has a baby who might not be optimally positioned, you can watch them 
innately assume a position that will help their baby descend into the pelvis or move in a way during contractions that will help the baby descend into the pelvis. We are so powerful internally. We do not need to be told how to birth. And when we are told and our physiology and our anatomy is disrupted, we actually create more problems. The instances of one of the major complications that doctors are most worried of, dystocia, it's the thing that physicians are most commonly sued for, is a shoulder dystocia. This is when during the birth, the baby's shoulder becomes hung up on the front of the mom's pelvic bone and usually requires some assistance or at the very least, a position change on the part of mom. Now in physiological birth, where women are not disturbed, dystocia is rare. It's very rare. I see it infrequently outside the hospital, but more frequently inside the hospital and even more frequently when mothers have an epidural. Because of course, when you have an epidural, your pelvic floor is paralyzed essentially, and you have no sensation. So you cannot tune in to what your baby might need. And you're largely immobile, which means if you need to change positions to help your baby navigate the pelvis, you can't or you certainly can't very quickly. And so then you're relying on your physician to utilize some other maneuvers to help the baby be delivered. But again, this points to leaving mother and baby alone to do the work of birth and letting things happen as they should. We will innately assume the position that our babies need in order to be born. And should they become hung up on the pelvis, we will innately change positions in the way we need to to help our baby be born and in the event that that doesn't result that's why you have someone another set of hands there to help you that's where the midwives really shine is when a complication arises they're there with their hands to do the work that needs to be done and up to that point they are ideally a silent observer physicians are not trained in silent observation they're trained in action they don't really know how to be still or to sit on their hands, and they shouldn't because physicians are trained to handle problems, and problems do require action. But birth, again, it's not a problem. It's a physiological state. We create the problem. So here we are, back to that adrenaline, and we've pushed our baby out and our baby is born. Left alone, a mother will usually guide her baby to the floor or pull her baby to her chest. Quite frequently, if truly left alone and the mother is not conscious of what other people might be thinking of her, she will lay the baby on the ground. And this is also physiologically designed because babies have a built-in extra degree of temperature to allow them to have a temperature drop once they are outside their mother's body and the cold air stimulates the trigeminal nerve and gets them breathing. And you'll see mother usually, if left alone, sort of look to the sky. Sometimes she will thank God or say a prayer or say, I did it or say, oh my God, or something of that nature. But almost always she will look up. And I think that's a really beautiful reflex to acknowledge that birth is really something greater than us. Now, once that's done, mom will pick up the baby. And now our hormones are starting to change a little bit. Our oxytocin levels continue to peak until they reach their highest level. And it's at this point that 
our body releases a nice big rush of oxytocin, which allows our placenta to detach from the uterine wall. It's important that the mother be able to hold and look at her baby because as the mother looks at her baby, she will know if her baby is safe. She will look at her baby breathing and crying and know that her baby has converted its circulation to do it on its own and that the placenta is no longer needed. This is one of the reasons when I'm talking with clients about cord clamping and we have the options of delayed or optimal, I say, let's consider a third option. Delayed cord clamping is one minute, optimal is waiting till it's white, and the option I like the best is what I call mother-directed because there is truly no other person in the room more qualified than the mother to tell us if our babies are okay. We look at the, as the mother, we look at the baby, we see the baby pink and breathing, we know that the placenta's work is done and we no longer need it. And by that time, the baby is certain to have gotten all of the blood that it needed from the placenta and is nice and pink. And the cord, if you want, can be clamped and cut. It's very uncommon in the hospital for a physician to allow placenta to be delivered without the cord being clamped and cut. At home, that's my preference. I wouldn't touch the cord until the placenta is out because there's really no reason to. Um, there's no evidence to support that being a good practice. So why are we doing it in the hospital? The answer is simply convenience and speed. And unfortunately, that is the truth of many hospital behaviors. It's convenience and speed. So our adrenaline that is no longer being released but is still active in our body is also active in our baby. And so our babies come out nice and alert. And why do they need to be alert? Well, because the biological imperative for a baby is to locate food and to bond with its mother. If you consider it from just a purely mammal speaking, if the mammal doesn't bond with its baby, doesn't love its baby, then it is likely to walk away from it and leave it and the baby will die. Same with food. Babies are not born particularly hungry. They swallow amniotic fluid inside and they actually, studies show, come out probably a little bit nauseated and don't actually want to eat for a while. But the initial seeking of the breast is an important biological function to create muscle memory and to solidify for the baby that if I have needs, my needs will be met by my mother. The infant's first couple of years of life are all about developing trust in their environment, and this is the first act of trust. Of course, during your pregnancy, your nipple and areola have become larger and darker, and since babies can only see a very short distance, they actually only need to see as far from their face to your breast, and that is about the distance they can see. This allows them to easily zone in on the breast like a bullseye, and Colostrum smells very similar to amniotic fluid, so a baby left alone will usually use its hands to find the breast, bring its hand to its mouth, to the breast, to its mouth, until it locates the nipple, and then sort of take its head in that direction. The other thing that the baby's doing during this time that's really cool and important is they are born with a built-in crawl reflex. If you push your hand against the bottom of a baby's foot, they'll actually push right off of you. And this allows them to crawl up the mother's belly. But it's not just to get to the breast. Think about what the baby's feet are doing on the mother's abdomen. This action of pressing into the abdomen to crawl further helps the uterus contract. All of those miserable belly rubs after birth, 
that your nurse does to you uh, by pressing hard on the fundus, the top of the uterus, to make sure it's contracted down are, in a physiological birth, not usually necessary because between breastfeeding, which releases oxytocin, the oxytocin released during the birth of the placenta, and the kicking of baby's feet, the uterus usually clamps down quite nicely and bleeding will go down to just a small trickle quite quickly. Important biological functions. Baby is also alert, looking at mom, right? Making connections, making a bond. Now our levels of oxytocin are remaining high and st starting to drop a little bit. And our levels of adrenaline are going down pretty significantly at about the two hour mark that adrenaline is almost completely gone. And it's no wonder that this is the point at which pretty much all of the things that we might be worried about in the immediate postpartum period in terms of emergencies like bleeding or babies having respiratory problems are no longer a risk factor because everyone is stable. This is when, if you're in the hospital, you're moved to a postpartum room, and this is when you want to take a nap. As that adrenaline crashes out, prolactin starts to rise for milk production and oxytocin levels remain high for bonding, the adrenaline is now gone and you and baby are both ready to take a nice long nap. Unfortunately, in the hospital, you're likely to be bothered in this early postpartum period by staff wanting to take your vitals and so forth. And this is a place you can really advocate for yourself if you're birthing in the hospital and ask to be left alone. When I had my baby at home, I remember eating uh, cake and pizza and having champagne and then going upstairs and we co-sleep with our babies. So my husband and I and our baby all went to bed and slept for about six hours. And I woke up, this was my first home birth baby and in a total panic thinking that she must have certainly died because why hadn't she nursed? Well, she hadn't nursed because what she wanted was a rest. Labor is hard work for all involved and a nap is in order for everyone, mom, dad, and baby. So this is a time that you can advocate for that rest and ask staff to leave you alone. They won't probably like it because they have things that they need to fill out and forms that they need to check off, but your well-being is certainly far more important than their charting system. The hormones of birth are work in a perfect symphony all the way through. It is There is no mistake there. It is perfectly designed, regardless of the way that you believe it was designed, whether by God, evolution, or some other force. The point and the bottom line is they work in perfect unison and symphony to ensure safe birth and delivery and immediate bonding latching milk production and rest trusting in these hormones and knowing that they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do and leaving them alone to do what they're supposed to do is really the key to an excellent outcome for mothers and babies i hope you found this helpful and happy birthing. The information on this podcast should not be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event.